0: friends and fellow storytellers story 2017 is two weeks away it's so crazy we've been talking about it for a year and now it's finally here things are pretty crazy right now as you can imagine around the story offices and we are anticipating incredible things for the 900 to a thousand artists and dreamers storytellers that will soon be pouring into the skirmerhorn symphony center in downtown nashville Gosh, I just can't believe it's this month. It's finally here. If you don't have your tickets yet, head on over to story2017.com and register. We extended the deadline for the $100 price increase to the end of this week. And there's still time to use the coupon code WEARSTORY. No spaces. WEARSTORY. So if you register this week, that is a total of $200. $200 in savings off the cost of registration. So do not miss it. Uh, You're going to hear some interviews from backstage later on months from now and they're going to be with some of this year's incredible presenter lineup and then you're going to wish you would have just gone ahead and invested in yourself and your work by being there so do it if if you're just on the fence because you're wondering if it's really worth it look register come take in the conference and then if you don't leave inspired and ready to do your best work just email us and I'll personally guarantee to refund every penny of your registration that's how much I believe in our conference experience this year. So there's no risk, just be there, story2017.com. And now, another great conversation here on the Story Podcast. There are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination.
1: The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway.
0: To be a writer, we have to sit down
2: and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers.
0: This week, my friend Alan Clark and I sat down with our mutual friend,
1: Ed Nash, I'm a painter, an artist, visual entrepreneur, a visual entrepreneur. <laughs> <A> visual entrepreneur. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> I actually, like that. people always ask me, like, so which artist do you like, and you know which artist do you study? And I like lo- I like a lot of artists, but I mainly I study more entrepreneurs, and and I don't I kind of study their technique and what they've done to master that art and master their concept. And then I don't really study a lot of artists because I don't think traditionally many artists are great entrepreneurs. No, they're and not. I, and I think in our, in our world now, you know, the artist has to be the entrepreneur because all those other aspects of, of, of um, you know, the, the artist that used to rely on, for example, like the gallery is, is sort of moving away. People don't need them anymore. So do you think all artists should think that way? Not just painters? Yeah, I think every artist should realize they're an entrepreneur. I mean, the, the, an, an entrepreneur creates a product, an artist creates a product, creates a concept, has to deliver the product, has to deliver the communication of the product, has to distribute it, visually distribute it. You know, first of all, you have to make, like, you know, your work has to be excellent, it has to be really high quality, but you also have to learn to distribute it really well too. There's two aspects.
0: Ed was born in Letchworth, Garden City, England. Letchworth was built by and designed by Quakers in 1903. It was a focus of the Arts and Crafts movement. Like several members of the British post-impressionist movement who visited, lived, and painted in Letchworth, Ed was inspired by the town's amalgamation of urban and rural life and its focus on visual beauty in the town environment, which was really the ideal of the Garden City movement. At age 13, Ed was awarded an art scholarship to Bedford School England, which accelerated his passion for art. He then went on to study fine art and psychology at Reading University in England, where he graduated with a first-class honors degree. Here, his work explored social psychology and art. His dissertation was on the effects of the disembodiment of virtual space on personality ed still explores the world of virtual space focusing on abstract non-representational work he currently lives in nashville where he is an art dealer appraiser and artist but his work can be found in collections across the us and uk and is represented in galleries in new york atlanta knoxville chattanooga and obviously here at home in nashville It's an incredible story, really. The story of a British kid growing up surrounded by a culture that celebrated art, then receiving a scholarship to study art himself. But his journey, as you're about to hear, is filled with more than just an art school education followed by a successful career as an artist. I can't wait for you to hear his story. I can hear the purist already. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alan, I think, probably has maybe experienced moments like this in his career, but it's like, no, man, it's about the art. So is it is it because you, you realize that you can't produce more art without also being an entrepreneur? Uh, or is it that sometimes you do it just for the art and other times you do it because you're an entrepreneur?
1: I mean, I'm an entrepreneur in that um, I, w- I want to represent my own work really well. You know, I don't necessarily want to rely on someone else's distribution method to to provide my income and to be able to me to make more work, you know. So I, I think someone asked me a while ago what um, you know what are the, the key aspects to be able to be a self-sustaining artist, and I said you need to be able to make enough work to be able to sell enough work to make enough work. So if I'm an artist only making two or three paintings a year. Um, um, only have three paintings, two or three paintings a year to sell, that enables me to pay for the rest of my studio and staff and family and mortgage and insurance and all that stuff. So that that's not going to work, right? So therefore, I need to find another job <laughs> to, to sustain that. So I need to be able to make enough paintings, however many it is, and they need to be high enough quality for me to be able to sell them to be able to make more paintings. You know, so it's it's a it's a self-sustaining thing. But but it, but it's very hard to be able to make enough paintings that are high enough quality, like or whatever you do, you know. So that is a that is a skill in art in itself. You know, every anyone can make a fabulous painting if they took ten years to make it, right? <laughs> I mean, anyone.
0: I don't know. I've seen your I think, work. I don't I, think I, I could do it.
1: <laughs> you could if you took <laughs> ten years to make one, right? I don't know. <laughs> you haven't seen me paint it. <laughs> He's horrible. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm, what I want to try to get at is figure out where that came from. I mean, was that something that was instilled in you as a kid? Because there's a lot of artists out there who, when they look at themselves in the mirror, they do not see an entrepreneur, and they don't have the same makeup that they see their other entrepreneurs have. So is that something that can be learned, or is it just something that you are? And where did where did you discover that?
1: Um, so... That just that that sort of comes from just the the, my life experiences. Let's talk about them. Okay.
0: So you grew up in the UK. Grew up in the UK. Um, Did you run a lemonade stand in the
1: UK? I didn't run a lemonade stand. I I washed cars. I (laughs) would wash cars and I and I I deburred metal for a summer job. That's kind of what I used to do: count nuts and bolts. So deburring metal is where you take the sharp edge off a a piece of sheet metal that's been cut. So when it cuts, it shears like that. And then you get one really sharp edge and one smooth edge. So how to take a hacksaw blade and then you have to like nick under the under the burr and then you like shh and you take the burr off and it cuts your hands to pieces. All (laughs) summer long, like five bucks an hour. (laughs) Uh, And I wouldn't say that's that's not you being an entrepreneur, right? That's just
0: you doing work work, for money. So where did the spark of wow I've gotta learn how to sell stuff come from?
1: Well, when I was at I, I got a I got a art scholarship to a boys' school. It was Bedford Boys School um, when I was thirteen, and I sort of realised that at that point I liked art, and, and technically I was I was a good draftsman, and I could draw, I could copy, you know, and that's kind of what you do at that point of your life. And then I went to university, and and I studied fine art and psychology, and while I was there, I realised that no one was teaching me anything about business. I had art tutors there that weren't really rep- weren't selling their own work, you know. They weren't being represented by in the art galleries. Some, you know, some, several of them were were practicing artists, um, but no one was teaching us about anything about business, marketing, how to represent your work, how to photograph your work, just none of these aspects. You know, how to deliver a concept. You know, how do you create an artist's statement? How do you? How do you? When someone asks you what your work is about, you need to have a really clear, concise uh, story about your work. And and um, so they weren't really teaching that. So, a friend of mine from university, from from school, said, "Hey, he, he was. So, what are you doing for the summer?" I said, "Well, I don't really know. Last summer, I deburred metal." <laughs> and he said, uh, "Look at my well, scarred uh, hands." <laughs> I, he said, "So, well, I've, uh, last summer I I I uh, worked for a company in America and I sold books door to door." I said, well, that sounds interesting. I always want to see America. And I thought, you know, if I could learn how to sell books door to door, I could sell anything. And I, I, th- I really thought that at the time. I thought, you know what? I might not be any good at it. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. And I think the reason why I did it was it terrified me. And I, was, I knew I'd have to become uncomfortable doing it. How old were you at the time? Um, 19. And so I came out to the States for the summer. I got a um, like a work visa, mm-hmm. backpack, got a Greyhound bus from New York down to Nashville. I spent a week's worth of training here. At the, there's a company in Nashville called Southwestern Great American, and that's the company I work with. And so we had a week's worth of training there. Then we got another Greyhound bus down to when we were to Decatur, Illinois, where I worked for the summer. And then we started knocking on doors. We found a place to stay, stay with a above a popcorn shop.
0: I, I don't want to fast forward past this moment. So, We've been friends so for a long time. So part of the deal was objective number one was to find a place to stay. That's right, that's right. And you literally were just knocking on doors saying, can I stay with you?
1: Uh, so so yeah, yeah. So you start, <laughs> at the end of the sales week, Thursday night, you, you get told where you're going to work go for the summer. And so this is, you're, like, you're going to go off to Decatur, Illinois. So I was like, okay, great. So you go to the town and you go to the, you go to the store and you, you buy a map of the town and you divide up the town, and you, you go out knocking. You say, "Well, that's your area, and that's your area, that's your area, that's your area." We need to find a place down here, so we all just went out to different neighborhoods and knocked on doors. Say, "Hey, do you know anyone that might have a place, room to rent for the summer?" You know, we just need a place to leave our stuff. We're out six days a week, from six a.m. till ten p.m. That's kind of where we need. That's what we're looking for. <laughs>
0: And then just stranger says, "Yeah, hey, you can stay with someone us." Someone <laughs> says,
1: "Sure, yeah, you can stay above a popcorn shop." And I think people just, you know, I think they sort of respected our, I uh, sort of have a go attitude, you know, like you know, th- I, I respect these kids. They're trying to make a living, and sure. And so there were like three of us, all from school, and we had a we stayed on someone's futon, and someone slept on the floor, and we would kind of rotate. You know, we biked around all summer long. I used to remember waking up in the middle of the night, like huge stomach, like like leg cramps from. Biking around the whole town, wow. but it, it, it's just some crazy. It's some and, great and,
0: stories. And in the, I bet, in those moments where you thinking like, "This is awesome." It's preparing me for being an artist. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I was <laughs> like, oh, "Man, this is." You this
1: can is, just hear the iron yeah, that's sharpening right. iron. <laughs> that's right. when you saw the tumbleweeds rolling down the street. No, yeah, that's right. And and, and you have to only only. And they always said at the time, I'm just, "You know, th- this experience is going to be so great for you in life. You know, you're going to really." When you're older, you're really going to, you know, value what you've done here. (laughs) Did you
2: believe that at the time?
1: I think I did. I did, but you don't know. I mean, you just don't know until you start doing it. So in the end, what I did is I I did okay that summer. I came back and I did it again. I recruited some other people to do it. Um, They all quit apart from like three. I took 12 people out like three, pretty much everyone left. I'm like, this sucks. It's like, well... I did tell you. <laughs> yeah. I did warn you. <laughs> I mean, we are selling books door to <laughs> uh, and it's straight commission. And you work eighty hours a week, and so um, and they, you know, of course, they blamed everyone else but themselves, you know. And that's unfortunately, that's you know, it's kind of what I see happen. And, uh, and it is a hard job, you know. It's not like, you know, there's, there's no there's no getting around that. And then, and so then, I did it for like probably uh, eight, eight, I think I did it eight eight or nine eight or nine years. And, wow. I, and I would recruit other college students to do it, and I would train them. Are and you I painting would, during this time? A little well? bit, a little bit, but not much. Did I, you
0: Did you at least have the idea in your head of like this is what I'm working towards? Someday I'm going to quit yeah. this and be an
1: artist. Yeah, I mean, I always thought I really want to be either an art dealer or I really, I mean, art I want to be an artist, and that that was kind of one day. This is this is what I'm working towards, but I forgot that along the way. You know, I kind of forgot those things. And I was saying to someone else the last other day, that's really scary because sometimes we have these gifts and we can forget about them. They can get like tucked back way in a closet somewhere. And and until someone opens the door and shines a light on it and come out, you know. This is a real gift you have. You can do this and this is it doesn't take it doesn't take as much as you really think it's gonna take to, to do it, hmm. you know.
2: I kind of like this. It's been a surprise for me because when I first met you, I had no idea that you painted. I knew you went to art school, but I meant I didn't know you were planning on painting. Yeah. So when I met you, it was just kind of like, oh, okay, that's going to do this now instead of be a, um, you know. Instead of selling other people's art. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he did. And it was such a surprise. And, And then, boy, I mean, it's like after that, you just caught fire and it was just fun to watch because... It is true. I mean, most of us, we think about the art part, but we don't think about the marketing and the selling part at all. We just mm-hmm. kind of get lost in that. And it, it is true. I mean, three out of 10 people in the United States are self-employed and there aren't hardly any classes about how to have business or conduct your business or how to sell your business. And mm-hmm. we just get lost, we get lost. And so a lot of this is just not knowing mm-hmm. more than maybe you know not being motivated. And some of it is, but we just need either permission or an instruction a lot of times. And then the third part is obviously motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me wonder what your transition was like. You know, if, when you, so you
0: you go from books to you start selling art and dealing art.
1: Yeah, so I so I did. Um, so I sold books for like nine years, mm-hmm. and what I was doing is I actually I was going to different countries. For example, I went to Bulgaria. I went to. Um, I had students coming from Russia. I went to Spain, Barcelona, and and you would just turn up, and he's. i remember going to Bulgaria for the first time, and like right we've got to recruit some students here and, and find, find some, a place to stay yeah <laughs> we in a hotel, That's right. <laughs> and so they came out and and i think like I, th- I remember two or three students sold that summer um and now i think there's maybe 50 or 60 students selling from bulgaria now that's amazing yeah it's pretty cool just from you going there yeah just from just some going over there and recruiting people and coming back and yeah um so um, yeah, after that, I realized I, I, I want that, that at the end of that year, it wasn't a great year. I, I'd drawn too much money from the company. And so I was like, man, this, you know, I've got to pay this money back. But I wanted to start an art business. So I thought I'm going to do that in Scotland. Um, but anyway, I, came, I, I, I spoke to the company, I spoke to Southwest and I said, hey, you know, I want to build an art business. I said, well, you can come here and do it. And so... Um, that was kind of my vision. I remember reading this book. It was kind of like uh, careers for like the creative people or maybe it was like what color is my parachute? I'm trying to kind of focus on how can I combine the different skills I've, I've had over the years as being an artist, as being an art dealer and it sort of narrowed down as being an art dealer. Mm-hmm. And so I started selling late 19th century, early 20th century paintings. It makes a lot of sense.
0: Because you love art, and I you kind. want to be an artist and then you'd learn this valuable. Yeah skill set to learn how to sell things. Yeah. so why not sell art?
1: Yeah. yeah. And so um, And so when I got here I, and, and the different the, the concept was I would go to people's homes and I'd talk to them about collecting art, and then I would bring paintings to them over time. I would take the gallery out of the equation, because most people, they don't have the time to go to art galleries, and, and often they'll lack the knowledge to know what they're looking for. And they don't understand how a painting's priced, and that can be intimidating to a lot of people, particularly like really successful people. Are like, why? why, how, much, why how, 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 how Why is this painting priced this way? You know? And, and they, so don't wanna,
0: they don't want to look dumb. So they don't want to look dumb. That's yeah. right.
1: You know. And so I would go and I would I'd have like a, and so anyway, when I first got here, I had a, a slide projector, and I would literally go to people's homes with a slide projector, and it would, talked about the de- ten different criteria for collecting art. And um, I would take paintings in, and they were in big bags. And I would carry them in to start with. And it was just a shambles. I mean, it was it was such a shambles. It was like so much information, people couldn't take it in. And then one day I, I met this guy called Harry Moody, and and um, I did a presentation to Harry in his home. And um, a few days later he called me back and said, you know, I want to get together with you. And um, so he sat me down and, and he gave me the, the hope sucks.
2: Talk. So, what is tell? What tell, talk about this?
1: Because you've talked about this before, and it really
2: kind of deflates your balloon the first time you hear it, but it makes sense after you understand it. So, the tell me what sucks this talk. Please, the, yes. He
1: gave me the hope sucks talk, and it, and and it, and it still I still have to remind myself of hope sucks. But hope is the gap that separates opportunity from preparation. Hope's a gap that separates Opportunity from preparation. A lot of people rely on hope and they coast by on hope but you can't plan and you can't predict for hope so that's why hope sucks <laughs> so, <laughs> i don't mean hope in a spiritual sense right o- sure. or, you know what i mean by hope is man i hope this person's going to buy something you know or i hope they understand what i'm talking about or you know all these different aspects of but you can squeeze out the hope if we're mentally determined enough and we also live in an uncomfortable way, and not like, as I was saying there, like not like sleeping in a sure. sleeping rough, but mentally and emotionally being uncomfortable. You know, I think it's our human nature to want to be comfortable. I mean, just look at look at the, the culture oh, we course. live in. You know, totally. everyone wants to be comfortable. Yeah. No one wants to be uncomfortable. And so, um, and we, and I think we have to remind ourselves of that as as artists. And, and, and you know, how do we, how do we Focusing on what I'm doing. So anyway, he gave me the hope sucks talk. Maybe it should be hope alone sucks. Hope alone. Hope, <laughs> hope alone sucks. Hope alone by itself. Yeah, yeah. Without the preparation. Yeah. Well, exactly. Once the hope's gone. <laughs> sure. what, see, if if hope's in the middle of opportunity and preparation, and you take hope away when opportunity meets preparation, yeah, then it's it's a done deal. Yeah. Not a done deal, but you're not relying on the hopeful elements. Hope alone. Yeah. Yeah. Hope alone sucks. Hope alone three. <laughs>
2: I think I saw that. There's a movie called Help on, right? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, the well, actor. Not if not, as we're well making known. it. The actor by this
2: point is never as well known as the main actor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so and then he and uh, and so he got together and he really helped me create um a like a little sales presentation where I would in like forty-five minutes, I would take the art world and I would condense it and help people understand the different criteria for collecting art why they should collect art and a little bit about the art market and so i, I did that in like about 45 minutes i had to be like in and out of the house and so we, we wrote out a presentation it took us several months to do it and i memorized it word for word and oh. i delivered it word for word to the minute and poor pa- we wrote out the whole we wrote out the pauses we wrote out everything wow we answered all the all the questions they could have answers to objections different it wasn't really answers to objections, because it's not the sales, it's, it's, it wasn't really a sales, it was just like a presentation, how could you clearly deliver what you were doing? And there were no questions. And it was just, it was kind of like a Broadway show. And at the end of it, you know, you moved on. Mm. And it was like the riverboat sale. You Did know, it work? You, yeah, it worked great. You know, and people were like, this is, this is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Because people didn't want to ask, they didn't want to answer questions because they didn't know what to say. Mm. And they didn't know what questions to ask, but they right. just wanted to learn and listen and understand and so that was that was a really that was awesome and then the concept was I would come back and meet with those people a couple of times a year and bring art that they might like and so um that's what I did. I did that for like three or four years and right right just when we had um my daughter, I started painting again and I started taking my paintings to along with me with the other paintings. And someone said, well, I don't, I kind of like your paintings more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. And that was the first time I took a painting along So on board. I'm, and I'm then, curious like
0: what that moment was like the first time that you decided to stick one of yours in with the mix. Was that somebody else that encouraged you to do yeah, that? Yeah, someone else. Someone said,
1: "Now I shared it to someone else. I'm like, man, these are beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is a beautiful painting. And then you should really take this along. And so I did. And, uh, I said we want to buy. It. I said really, <laughs> <laughs>
2: that'll be twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> and so, uh, and well, let it, me ask it, that question though. Yeah. In the very
2: beginning, what you know, how did you figure out the pricing? What what were you thinking about? Like, you know, well, how did, did you value yourself?
1: Well, I'd already. I mean, I'd seen paintings. I mean, I'd been selling paintings. You know, every week I'd look at about a thousand paintings. I was trying to figure out which ones to buy and which ones to, you know, which ones I could represent, which ones I could sell, and you know it's um and and that was a really critical time because that period of time I had so much exposure really trained my eye. My eye was like as a, visually I knew what I liked, and a lot of artists don't really know what they like
2: it also gives you an and, objectivity. And th- so they don't know what to paint or yeah, they don't know what yeah. to
1: create. if I don't know the end goal of where I want to get to, how can I create this end goal? I mean, a lot of people they just kind of like oh that's that's great, I' going to move on so. But I really trained my eye during that time and 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 you know, I could spot like a little nick, or I could spot someone that wasn't right in the painting, or I could look at the balance of the painting and the composition. And you end up looking at the breadth of an artist's work and you're like, Well, I've seen, you know, hundreds of these paintings by the same artist. This is the best one. This is a good one. Mm-hmm. And so, um that that's something that you just I mean, you can't teach that, you can't learn that apart from exposure. Um, and it was like a, so. It was like a four-year intense exposure to the art market and so understanding how prices things were priced. So when I came to representing my paintings, I was like, well, you know, I know all these artists over here, and this is how these are priced, and I think mine should be priced in the same way.
0: Yeah, you're talking about Monets and stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was. But, uh, what Mon- I was Mon- really,
1: actually what Mon- I was selling Mon- was man was um, the uh, the lesser-known American impressionist paintings. So artists that painted at the same time as, as Monet and Cezanne. They went to the same places, they painted the same art schools, but they were just less known. You know, so and what I realized was that, um, you know, you kind of, people are, are buying, visually buying the painting, but they have to uh, mentally digest um, other aspects of the art, the byproducts, right? The byproducts is what, what people buy sometimes. The byproducts is what people, help people rationalize the, the visual beauty, you know, so I can, visually I'm attracted to the painting, vi- you know, emotionally I want to buy it, but mentally, how can I rationalize those, those aspects?
0: Would you say that when someone buys an expensive piece of art, that it's because of a story that they're telling themselves that they want to be true um, about who they are?
1: No, hmm. I don't think, I don't think it's that want to be true. I think, I think sometimes will will see a painting and they just, they just have this like emotional connection to it. And, and they're like, this is beautiful this This kind of takes me somewhere that nothing has taken me before, mm-hmm. and um I want to remember that experience and I want that to be part of my house or my you know my my environment and it reminds me of i think deep down what we were what we were made to do i mean you know we we were creators, and when we find someone that's, that's a beautiful creation, then I think we want to hang on to those experiences it yeah. you know ment- mentally takes us somewhere.
0: I want to get into your creative processes in a moment, but I'm curious about your kids. Uh huh. Have you noticed anything about how they paint? Have you encouraged them to paint? What, yeah. what is it about kids that create so freely, and then something happens, and all of a sudden we care what everyone's going to think of our work?
1: Yeah, no, it's hard. It, I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's these really flashy advertisements and glossy spreads that kids want to create. They want they want the artwork to be beautifully finished. The, they they lose the raw creative energy. Like Picasso said, you know, we I have, have to learn how to paint like kids. <laughs> you know? mm. And so I, I think I think the uh, I noticed that with my like Rafe, he is he he just attacks the canvas. He'll do anything he can. He doesn't care. <laughs> he won't tell me. I, I said, what about this? No, that's that's not right. And then Lila, she's eight now, and so she's. But she's more interested in, in um, you know, portraiture and 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 getting, and, and people and faces and 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 so I I sort of see that, creeping in, huh. you know and, you know, Rafe's brilliant. You know, he'll do the painting and like, <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> I'm done now. You know, and Rafe's, buddy, it's not done. And that, there's a part of me that's like, it's not done. But he's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm like, well. Sit down. We right <laughs> the background right here, but um, you know he was at the studio the other day and he, he he wanted to go home. He said, it's time to go home." I said, "No, we we got to create. We have got to create something." So he's always creating something. Does that make you proud? Yeah, but I, I mean, the kids. Every kids. I mean, every kid likes art. You know, they, they like art when they're younger. I think it, that's why how. How can you how can you stimulate that and and help them as they get older, um, and and how can it be? You know, what you, what you learn is that learning how to paint in an abstract way is actually is, is a very, it takes time for them. They can't do that. It's a harder thing for them to learn. They want to become more representational, more realistic Yeah. as they get older. So
0: let's dig into your process then, right. your creative process. You, wait, you wake up in the morning and paint every single day?
1: Um, I, f- I find like more now I have to fight to try and find the time to paint. In fact, I had had a, a, a good uh, John Cleese quote of the day or a tweet. It was about her, you know. We have to. We're limited by the, the boundaries of space and the boundaries of time, and um, and and so that's kind of what limits me, is time, <laughs> not so much space because I've got a. i have got I mean, but it's it's like finding time between balancing all the other aspects of life. Sure. But I'll probably I try to come in early. I try to get in the studio about six, um, and. Paint in the morning, um, and then deal with email and office in the afternoon, and then come back and have dinner with Alan Clark and maybe paint till midnight. <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
2: I know when to check on him. He, he goes in at night to get again get some alone time just paint. And sometimes I'll go by and disturb him, and then we we'll go grab something to eat. But I mean,
0: are you like are you like waking up in the morning and like while you're driving to the studio, you have these visions of. Oh, this is what I'm gonna paint when I get there, or is it when you stare at a blank canvas? Are you scared of a blank canvas?
1: No, when? no, no, I'm not. I, I, I just sort of, I know that. Um, I just, I just need to start it. I need to start painting. It's very hard to find the time because I think, the challenge is we, th- we think we need more time than we need. Like I think, one of the the frustrations that, that I used to have was that, I'd need like. Four days, you know, of just alone time to make a painting. Waiting for inspiration. Yeah, waiting for inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a real challenge that really that can often intimidate people to not actually do it in the first place. But in fact, once you start, it might only, you know, you might only need ten minutes to start doing a little bit of painting and, and you're like, oh great, now I can now I've forgotten about all the other distractions of life. Now I can find the time to do it. So and you can kind of put everything out.
0: How would you describe your style of art? You have a unique way of describing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really inspired by a Japanese philosophy called Wabi Sabi. And it's a, it basically deals with finding beauty through the imperfection and beauty through the decay. And it speaks to finding um, like a spiritual longing and sort of an aesthetic based on, on, on beauty through textures and history. So th- this is, I, I sort of wrote this down so I so I could, I could uh, deliver this properly. But it's um, it's a Japanese process uh, called kintsugi, and it basically means golden repair. And it's the art of restoring broken pottery with gold. So the fractures are like you know they're actually illuminated, and it's a physical sp- expression of its spirit. You know, it's ex- a physical expression of the breaks that have been. You know that are part of the pottery, and so as a philosophy, it celebrates the imperfections as an integral part of the story, not something to be disguised. You know, and I think that's maybe what we try and do is we kind of hide the hide the cracks. And the artists believe that when something has suffered damage and has history, it becomes more beautiful. Um, the true life of an object and and really a person begins the moment. That it breaks and reveals that it's vulnerable, and the gap between once pristine appearance and its visible imperfection deepens its appeal. So, I love that. I feel like there was a period when, um, like several really tough periods of my life, have been have been like the, you know, the the foundation moments for what I've done, what I'm doing now. You know, like I was a really tough period when I, when I went, when I'd been selling books, I left that company, and started the art business, and I owed the company money, and so I went back and I sold books door to door by myself. Um, in uh, in Nashville in the fall and it was cold, and I'd I remember getting a car. I, I didn't have a car, but there was a guy he had a car, and. The windows didn't work, and the heating didn't work, and the window was taped up. I think, and uh, I traded a pod, uh, I traded a, an iPod for the car. <laughs> it must have been a great car, <laughs> it was a pretty good car. It was a pretty good car, and it actually became Nikki's car for a while. Uh-huh. And um, I remember that? I remember that thing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I remember really driving in the snow, and it was, it was, there was no heating in this thing. I was living in Antioch. I was driving out to Fairview every day. And knocking on doors and, and so I I remember I remember at that point it was just like I just got like just crushed again and it was it was a really strong moment it was a really strong memory and it's good those memories are so good because they sort of ground you on like you know what it's okay it's okay because you can you can come back from this again so you shouldn't be afraid of doing what you do next so that was one of them you know selling books the first time was another one <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, it was a really humbling experience because I had to go back and do it all over again. Yeah, and I'd been doing it nine years. I've been teaching people how to do it. And now I had to go back and do it again.
0: I'm sure it was humbling.
1: It was humbling. And and um, I think it was, it was a good thing. And I, I decided I did want to do it again because I needed to remember how hard it was to start over again. And, and I was going to be starting over a new business again. And that job is really... I think one thing I learned from selling books was mentally how to talk to yourself in a really good way because as an artist you're spending so much time by yourself and you know by the time i'm working by myself or painting um you know we have to emotionally speak to ourselves emotionally speak to our soul in the right way um otherwise you know you, you, it's you and yourself <laughs> <laughs> you know you've got to be a good friend mentally and i think that that can really inhibit some artists i i, I believe i think that's one of the the core strengths I've learned from that. Learning how to work hard physically, mentally, and emotionally. The, like, three critical things.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. So what would you say? What would be your greatest piece of advice to all, this, all the artists out there going, well, it's easy for Ed now. Look at him. selling, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of art on a regular basis. I'm, I'm still doing this and ready to quit. What's your advice?
1: I think sometimes, uh, actually, was, I was to the podcast about a, uh, a quilter. I'm trying to remember his name. It was um, oh, Luke Hayes, and he makes quilts, modern-day quilter. And uh, he said, you know, we're all, he said, I think we're intimidated by feeling like we're an imposter, you know, but everyone's an imposter in their own world. And if you're doing things right and you creatively challenge yourselves, then you're an imposter in your own you know, everyone thinks, you know, look at Harris. Look at Harris, he's got it all together, mm-hmm. but, you know. But he's doing, you know, he's got this big conference he started and he's got his podcast and he's got his, you know, and he's got his illusions and, you know, he's got his whole brand. You're like, man, look at this, it's easy for Harris. But really, I, I'm sure when you started doing this conference, you're like, man, I've never done a conference before. I'm <laughs> be an imposter over here. But, and everyone's
0: Yeah, we're two years in, I still feel that way. Yeah, you know what I mean? I think yeah, we I totally. I
1: think, I think we should feel like, everyone thinks like, oh, you know, i you know, I need to have it together. I need to feel like I'm the artist before I'm an artist. You know, well, you want to be a filmmaker, write a, write a film, go make a film, and then you're a filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I, I feel like, um, I think they need to in really, I think if they aren't starting out, really enhance your craft, get your craft right, get it beautiful, get it exactly how you want it, get it finished right, get it market ready. Before you start to market and distribute it, and that, that I think I think sometimes people get stuck halfway before they do the second part. They haven't really refined where they want to get to before they.
0: Yeah, my I think some people might be listening, and there's the risk of them misunderstanding you and hearing you say everything has to be perfect before you put it out there.
1: Um, that's not not what I mean necessarily. Um,
0: so if I get it right, you don't mean wait until it's perfect before you ever do anything, because otherwise they'll never push anything. Out right, the door, right,
1: right. No, you're right. You're right. Um, I just think, you know, spend some time refining your craft before you before you send it out there to the world.
2: How much would you say is an artist supposed to dedicate their time or at least their focus on like half of doing what they do with the other half being selling what they do? Or is it something else? Is it 70-something and 30 or whatever? You know what I mean? What is the yeah, percentage I, that you would I'd, spend?
1: I'd, I'd, probably, I'd say it's probably 20-80. It's 20 making it, 80 marketing. Wow.
2: See, that's that's opposite of what everybody thinks to me, even me. And mm-hmm. I'd work pretty dig them hard. And mm-hmm. it's just mainly, you know, I've seen artists come in and they'll spend money uh, on us, photographers and designers and mm-hmm. things like that. And and they'll they, they will spend most of the money on recording the project A little bit of money on making it look good and zero money on marketing it. And then they've Mm -hmm. got a thousand CDs sitting in boxes in their garages. And to me, that's just sad Mm -hmm. because they dumped that much love and and care into what they were doing. But then nothing goes past that.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. And to me, that's just a crime. That's a crime because, you know, this. not only is there a lot of people need to hear it, but you need to support yourself. You need to pay for what you did. And things like that, and then you to see that happen to me, it has to be more than just a twenty percent effort. You know, they're relying—they're
1: they're relying on the hope. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know that—that's it. They've—they've they've done all the—they've done the first part. Mm-hmm. You know, they've made the work. Yeah, but um, you know, in the world we live in now, we can distribute our own concepts, our own artwork very easily. But I think people are challenged on how they do that, and I think I think people need to treat that. You are know, back to what? Uh, what would they do? How would an artist do? I uh, just you know treat your treat it like a job. <laughs> you know, go to work. Yeah. <laughs> go to work hard. Go to work. This is your job. You know, it, be boring. You know, don't don't go out. You know, it, uh, <laughs> you know There's a there's a, if, you, if you read that. Um, there's, a, there's a really good essay going around right now called uh, "Still Like an Artist." Mm-hmm. you see that if you're it one, yeah. of, one of them's like you know live a boring life <laughs> it's okay to be boring <laughs> you know focus on making great work and um that's a really good essay you need to get him at the conference somehow
0: yeah austin he actually spoke his story two years ago did he austin Cleon. oh yeah it's great yeah it, you should follow him on twitter if you don't he's hilarious
1: really yeah
2: where was the the point at which you flipped the switch at what point like when you were selling and you decided? to take your art before that though, because before that is when you decided to flip the switch. When was that? What, do you remember this moment that you had that you were like, you know, why can't I do this? Why can't I not and, you know, put my art out there and sell it?
1: Yeah, I, I remember before I started painting, I remember looking around and I, I, I saw what was here in Nashville mm-hmm. and I was like, well, I know I can, I know my work's better than this. I mean, I, I know I could do this. And I saw a couple of artists doing what they were doing. They were doing it full time. I thought, well, man, if I can just do a little less than that, then <laughs> I could do just a little bit. I'm fine, you know? Yeah. And, and so um, I think it was, but, at, but I remember that point. It was after someone just bought that first painting. I thought, you know, this, is, this is so much easier. This is so much more fun. And I enjoy it. And, and I, was, you know, I, was, I was made to make paintings. And now I can make as many paintings as I want. And now I feel like I'm playing catch-up, which is almost why I work so hard. Because I feel like I'm working on all the years that I didn't paint, mm. so I feel like I'm I'm working on, you know, th- fourteen years of not of not painting again. So I feel like I'm playing catch up, and I feel like I've got all this work I've got to get out that that I hadn't got out that I've been suppressing, mm. and so I think right now I'm trying to learn how to to balance it a little bit better, <laughs> and and trying to learn how to how to what what what's been really good the last few years is 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 making sure that, I, that I'm outsourcing all the things that I, that I don't need to be doing. You know, and I'm really, you know, as I said earlier about Cleese and managing our ti- boundaries of time and boundaries of space, well, making sure that we are using you know, our most valuable resources um, or the most important part of our time to be doing the most important thing, which is painting. And then making sure that other people are doing the other parts, hiring good people to do, making frames, varnishing paintings, installing work, all these other all these other aspects and finding great people to be doing those to be doing those jobs. And as an artist, we don't have to do everything. And I think that's what limits a lot of artists is they end up doing everything. And so they don't really end up creating a really strong body of work because they're running around trying to do everything. You know? Get out of the way. Pay someone else to do other things for you. Trade, you know, trade with them. You find someone else and, you know, barter with them if they like your work. Do something else that
2: So how let's sum this up. Kay. If you're if you're looking out over the, your career, and even the future, mm-hmm. and like either where are you going, or you know what would you like to have said about your life and,
1: and how you've lived it as an artist? Um, I'd like I'd, I would like to have I'd like to be seen as I'd like my kids to to see that I was I was a good dad and I was um, you know a good husband and you know. And a balanced artist. (laughs) I I, I mean, that's that's kind of what, um, and that's that's kind of where I'm mentally at. Trying to balance, just trying to balance all of it. I mean, just trying to juggle it all.
0: To prove that not every famous, well-known, successful artist, three hundred years from now, (laughs) had to live a life of depression and sorrow that ended in (laughs) suicide. Exactly,
1: or like burn out at thirty, you know. (laughs) And and so, you know, how can how can it be? how can your creativity be something that you can really enjoy and is, is is sustaining, and you can build a you know balanced life around? That's pretty simple. I like it.
0: I love Ed. Not only is he a close friend, but he's a major source of inspiration to me and so many others when it comes to the constant tension between art and commerce. I love his story of going from book salesman to art salesman to eventually fulfilling his dream of selling his own art. If you aren't familiar with his work, you have to check it out. Head on over to ednashart.com. E-D-N-A-S-H art.com. He's also awesome at showcasing his work on Instagram, and it's the same as his site, at ednashart. We're so grateful that you've taken the time out of your busy schedule to listen along to this episode. Reach out anytime you guys have feedback, questions, or even guest recommendations. And please, please, if you've enjoyed the Story Podcast in any way, take a short minute to leave a rating or review on iTunes, or better yet, push out a tweet or Instagram post about this episode and what you got out of it. As always, I am Harris the Third. You can tweet or DM me on Instagram at at HarrisIII. Harris, I, 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 like the Roman numeral 3, can't wait to see so many of you in person in two short weeks at Story 2017. I'll see you there. This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.